Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, and welcome to the Rachman Review. I'm Gideon Rachman, Chief Foreign Affairs Commentator for the Financial Times. In this episode, we're looking at the situation in Israel and Palestine. The week began with skirmishes between Israeli police and Muslim protesters in Jerusalem that have escalated into rocket attacks and airstrikes, have killed civilians and sparked international concern and condemnation. The whole situation is unfolding against the backdrop of deep political instability, both in Israel and the Palestinian territories. My guests this week are Diana Buto, a Palestinian lawyer and analyst, and Noga Tonopolsky, who covers Israel for a number of publications, including the Los Angeles Times. So, could this be a turning point in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict? The rockets that Hamas launched into Israel this week landed on Tel Aviv and Jerusalem, the country's two most important cities. As of Wednesday, there was a reported five deaths in Israel and at least 35 in Gaza after retaliatory Israeli bombing raids. There's also been rioting in Arab-Israeli cities. The escalations raised fears that we're returning to the darkest days of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. UN officials have warned of a danger of all-out war. The upsurge in violence has come at a time when Benjamin Netanyahu, the Israeli Prime Minister, is clinging on in office after failing yet again to secure a working majority in the most recent Israeli election. The Palestinian Authority on the West Bank is also struggling to retain its legitimacy after delaying elections. The broader context is a complete absence of progress towards a political settlement between Israelis and Palestinians, amidst continuing controversies about creeping annexation of Palestinian land and property in East Jerusalem and the West Bank. When I spoke earlier this week to Diana Buto and Noga Tonopolsky, rockets had landed on Jerusalem and the first Israeli bombing raids had taken place on Gaza. But the full cycle of escalation had not yet unfolded. Even so, Diana Buto was in no doubt that we were looking at a serious and qualitative change in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. This is definitely quite big because uh, this is the first time that we're seeing that all of the different parts of the Palestinian community have been engaged in protests. So what first started off as protests in Sheikh Jarrah, in, in a neighborhood in Jerusalem, then spread to the Al-Aqsa compound because of the fact that there were restrictions that were placed on Muslim worshippers being able to access that compound. And once that uh, took shape, then you saw that Palestinian Muslims and Christians, actually, who are living throughout this area, then soon started to get engaged in these protests. And it's been now several sustained days of protests, not just in the area of Sheikh Jarrah and in the old city of Jerusalem, but all throughout the West Bank, in the Gaza Strip, and throughout a number of different Palestinian cities and towns inside Israel. I don't think that this is going to die down anytime soon, 
particularly given that we see that the numbers of casualties are are rising. And Noga, do you think that this came as a surprise to, I, I hesitate to the Netanyahu government because Israeli politics is in is in chaos at the moment, but to the Israeli authorities, did they see this coming? I really think, Gideon, that this should be should become a textbook case for politics 101, if I may say this, for anyone interested in politics. Because when you say the Netanyahu government or the Israeli authorities, at this point, it is unclear to me who you're really speaking about. The extent of non-governability in Israel right now is simply impossible to overstate. And while there are parts of the offices of state that keep functioning, and while Israel is lucky to have an economy that has remained strong, there is simply no one governing the country. And what started the spark in Jerusalem was a stupidity. It was this new Jerusalem police chief putting up barriers, metal barriers at Damascus Gate, which is this gorgeous amphitheater-like space where people love to gather during Ramadan. It's soft, you know, this is not a place of violence during every Ramadan, every Jerusalemite knows it. And the new Israel police chief stared at the cameras the night that this started and simply lied. He stared at the cameras and he said, it's like this everywhere, we put up barriers here every year. And Every single person living in Jerusalem of every religious or ethnic affiliation knew it was a lie. And basically, by then you had young Palestinians furious and uh, already engaged in clashes with his police force. By the time the police inevitably withdrew, which was two or three days later, you already had these Kahanist Jewish extremists who were flooding in, trying to take advantage of this situation, the juncture in Jerusalem, screaming death to the Arabs in the streets. And these people feel that they have more power because Netanyahu has ushered their leaders into the Knesset in hope of saving his political skin. And so I feel that in my lifetime, I have never before been able to see so clearly you know, the kind of butterfly effect of politics, right? One almost insignificant, one stupid step leading so quickly to a cross-border fatal conflict. It's astonishing to me. And as you say, Noga, there are these extremely contingent things happening which trigger violence and big consequences, but also a decades-long unresolved conflict. I mean, Diana... From the Palestinian side, do you think that something like this was always going to be inevitable, that Israeli hopes that things were calming down were never really going to be realized, whatever the actual spark was? This is the fundamental problem, is that people view these terms of rest and unrest through the perspective of what it's like to be an Israeli and not through the perspective of what it's like to be a Palestinian. I'll give you an example. So Monday, May the 10th, marked Jerusalem Day. And Jerusalem Day is a day where they're actually celebrating 54 years of military occupation. Israelis, they'll, they'll view this as a day of celebration. But ask yourself what it means to be a Palestinian who has to witness this. You're witnessing people who are parading and, and celebrating 
the denial of our freedom, the theft of our land, the takeover of our houses, the fact that we have we can't have a normal life. And so these words of rest and unrest, they're simply in relation to what it means to be Israeli, but not what it at all means to be Palestinian, because for Palestinians, we just simply haven't had any days of rest for 54 years because we've been living under this very brutal military occupation. That being said, I think it's also important to to put this into its proper political perspective as well. And I I agree very much with Noga with the way that she's recited the events. And one thing that I think I would add to it is that there could have been decisions that could have been taken at different steps of the way to actually stop this. For example, decisions could have been taken early on to remove those barricades. Decisions could have been taken very early on to not allow these kahanas to chant through the streets and have these death to Arab protests. Um, decisions could have been taken early on not to prevent Palestinians on the, the holiest night of Ramadan, to not prevent them from getting to the mosque, which is what they did. They even blocked the major highway to prevent Palestinians from getting to the mosque. And decisions, of course, could have been taken not to fire um, at worshipers. And so there have been there have been decisions that have been taken along the way in which Palestinians are the ones who are paying a very heavy price, and it didn't have to be this way. This is the part that is very frustrating for me is that it didn't have to be that way. And instead, I, I can't help but think that Netanyahu is doing this for his own political survival because he spent the past, his entire political career, pointing to three different entities, whether it's Hamas, Iran, or Hezbollah. And in order to stay in power, he's had to stir up one, two, or three of them. And so at this point in time, I can't help but think that this is the direction that he's taking in order to be able to stay in power. And Noga, I mean, what's your analysis of that? Do you agree with it, that this is being driven by Netanyahu's struggle for political survival? I think he's now the longest serving ever Israeli prime minister, but we're now on to, is it the fourth, fifth election where he hasn't been able to, you know, really get a proper majority? Um, and is it going to work if it's a survival strategy? Um, yeah, I do. I agree with what Diana said. And I, I would add something. We're now more than a month after the March 23rd election, which was the fourth successive election in under two years in which Netanyahu failed to be able to form a, a government, a stable government. Um, it's a bit of a strange thing to say, right? A normal political party in a normal parliamentary system would probably have a leadership race if their leader simply could not form any government. And so what we're seeing is the complete, I would say, distortion of Israeli politics, all at the service of Netanyahu, who is desperate to survive politically, desperate to stay in power. And yeah, he's been the prime minister for 12 years. He is by far the most powerful man in Israel. And he has spent these 12 years consolidating a very presidential view of what the Israeli prime ministership is. And so Israel finds itself now with a weakened parliament, with the prime minister of the country regularly railing at the judiciary for being part of what he calls a left-wing coup, 
against him. So I say this because, of course, I do agree that this kind of succession of errors and misjudgments and just unfortunate um, mistakes made by the Israeli authorities in the last few weeks, um, yeah, they're part of what's trying to keep him in power. But I think, returning to your initial comment, Gideon, I think that no less they're part of a country that doesn't have a proper governing structure right now. And that is happening because Netanyahu has given up governing as his fight for personal uh, vindication gets more and more desperate. Somehow in that vacuum and in the swirling situation in which his ministers are more and more subject to him and his moods and his needs, and a police minister would be willing to do literally anything to try and please him and prove loyalty, then yes, what we see is all of this together. That's a pretty bleak picture that Noga's just painted of the Israeli side of the political situation. But Palestinian politics are also, it seems to me, highly dysfunctional at the moment with the delay of the elections and the continuing struggle for authority and legitimacy between the Palestinian Authority and Hamas. Indeed, and this is really only uh, exacerbating the problem rather than alleviating the problem. And the reason is that I'm not somebody who believes that Palestine is going to be liberated at the ballot box. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm a little too old for that. But I do think that elections are important because they're important to be able to have a new leadership and a new vision and challenge the existing structures and challenge this existing framework of negotiations, of this peace process, and so on. And so the cancellation of these elections, the reason given was Jerusalem. But there was a, a much deeper subtext. And the subtext was that Abu Mazen, Mahmoud Abbas, the current Palestinian president, he knew that he, he was simply not going to win because of the fact that there were so many political parties that came forward to run for these elections. So just in the same way that Noga was mentioning the lack of a leadership race uh, within the Likud, so too we've seen that there's been a lack of primaries or the lack of a leadership race within the major political party of Fatah. And as a result, we saw that instead of people taking their grievances out through the process of primaries, Fatah split itself up into four different political parties. And in splitting itself up into four different political parties, it was for sure going to lose the election. So here we are now in the year 2021. We haven't had parliamentary elections in 15 years. We haven't had presidential elections in 16 years. And the current political party seems to be very happy with the status quo but it's a status quo that is simply unsustainable for Palestinians, given both what we are facing and given the age reality that Mahmoud Abbas is in his 80s and we really don't know who his successor is going to be. And Hamas, of course, has seized this moment to restart the rocket war and so on. Do you feel that given what's happening to Fatah, that Hamas within the Palestinian world are gaining ground? Well, if you'd asked me just before these latest attacks in Jerusalem, I would have said no. And it was clear just even leading up to these elections that 
Hamas was not going to win and Fatah was not going to win, even though Hamas is definitely much more organized and really only presented one list, their numbers and their support in the Gaza Strip has been very, very low. And so too, when it comes to Fatah, their support in the West Bank has been very, very low. One difference was that Hamas made it clear that they don't want to rule any longer. They made it clear that they're not going to put forward a candidate for the presidency and that they are happy to enter into some sort of a power sharing agreement, mostly because of the fact they've been unable to rule for all of these years and because their popularity has completely plummeted throughout this period of time. Today, the situation is very different. And the reason that it's different is because Palestinians are under attack. And given that Palestinians are under attack, I do think that there is support for any form of resistance now, given what we've been seeing going on in Jerusalem and in other places. Until all this happened, for all his domestic problems, Netanyahu could claim that he's had a pretty good two or three years, above all with this diplomatic breakthrough, with the normalization of relations with the Gulf states, the so-called Abraham Accords, the hope that maybe Saudi Arabia would be next. But nonetheless, do you think that Israel feels relatively insulated from the kind of diplomatic backlash that they've had, international backlash they've had in previous episodes when they've bombed the Gaza Strip, killed civilians? It's become very difficult internationally for Israel. Do you think that's likely to happen again? Or do you think Netanyahu feels by having warmed things up with the Arab world that they're less vulnerable than they used to be? He appears to be acting as if, yes, as if the foreign international condemnations don't touch him. But again, Israel's in a strange situation now because for all of his dominance in the Israeli political world, and even to a certain extent, um, his importance, you know, locally as a Middle East leader on the international stage, but mostly he's really, truly focused on his own survival. Any political event, any political, even just almost coincidences, random things that happen in Netanyahu's function of the last few, maybe two years now, what we see is somebody who acts affirmatively only to save his own skin. And Diana, to finish with you, I mean, through these many years, the Palestinians have, I suppose, one of the few cards they've had is that they did have quite a lot of international support. How much, if at all, has the psychology changed on the Palestinian side as a result of the Abraham Accords and the sense that, certainly during the Trump period, that the pressure was off Israel? It was definitely something that people were talking about, but there's a disconnect. So people were obviously very upset about the normalization agreements. And the reason they were upset was because the Arab world has always been a very staunch supporter of Palestinian rights. And the last thing that we wanted to see was that a country that's not normal, which is Israel, countries around the world begin to behave as though it is normal. And so there was definitely a great deal of anger at these normalization agreements, but also directed at the Palestinian Authority for not doing enough to stop them. But the, the disconnect is that people understand that these are agreements that are being put into place by governments. They're not agreements that are being put into place by people. And if you look at the opinion polls in these countries, in all of these countries where, where normalization agreements have been signed, 
the vast majority of people are opposed to these normalization agreements. And so for many, it came out in the aftermath of Trump that, that yes, these are governments that are, for the most part, dictatorships um, that have signed these normalization agreements with Israel, but it doesn't mean that they have normalized relations with the Arab world as individuals of the Arab world. So on that front, there's still a lot of hope that things can be turned around. And now, um, with what we're seeing happening in Jerusalem, we are seeing a great deal of international support. And we are seeing that it's now difficult for, for countries to remain silent, um, or it's difficult for them to continue, in the words of one friend who said, to continue the word salad that different spokespeople and leaders have been tossing in order to try to not condemn Israel for what it's been doing. Dinah, thank you very much. We'll have to leave it there for the time being. Thanks also to Noga for joining me on this week's edition of the Rachman Review. Thank you. Thank you. That was Diana Buto and Noga Tarapolsky ending this edition of the Rachman Review. Thanks for listening. I hope you'll join us again next week. You can find the Rachman Review in all the usual podcast apps. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.